always catch some grief whenever I wear a Chiefs jersey. And, and I think it's because a lot of you who give me grief think that there's a measure of hypocrisy in that. Because even though I've been here 30 years, you guys know I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I cannot help myself. I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. Yeah. yeah. And I'm desperately in need of a 12-step program to cure me of that. Because I cannot help myself, as many times as my heart has been broken through the years, if there's a star on the hat, I watch him play. But I really have always loved the Chiefs. I'm so old that I can remember the AFL, and I watched Super Bowl IV. I mean, I, I was, you know, in middle school pulling for the Chiefs. And if you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world why I would love the Chiefs, because after all, they are a team that once was in Texas. The original team was the Dallas Texans. They have Dallas ownership, but they've made a home here. So all the, all the reasons in the world why I should love that. So I'm from Texas, and I made a home here. By the way, how about those Royals? Yeah. Boy, boy, do I have perfect timing or perfect timing. I was in Mexico all last week, and I flew home late Friday night, and I got there just during the rain delay. Do I have great timing or do I have great timing? Because I didn't have to, like, grieve through that game like a lot of you guys did. But I do love NFL football, and I think one of the reasons I love NFL football so much is it's exciting to watch a comeback. And although I'm not a fan necessarily of either team, I will never forget January 3, 1993, um, because that is the game, and a playoff game, that a lot of people who love NFL history call the comeback. The Houston Oilers were visiting the Buffalo Bills in the, in the, in the playoffs, and Houston had beaten Buffalo the week before substantially, and, Houston, and Buffalo was without their Hall of Fame quarterback, Jim Kelly. They were without their top defensive player. And by this time, they were also without Thurman Thomas, the pride of Oklahoma State, who was their running back, and he had been injured in the game. So there was every reason to feel like that Buffalo was in trouble. <laughs> Add to that, they were down 35-3 to in the third quarter. You're down 35-3 to without your top offensive and defensive players. Your chance of coming back against a team that beat you with them the week before is not strong. And so Buffalo experienced something that was very unusual for them because they have excellent fans, Bills do. Their own fans begin to leave the stadium. Guys, I want to tell you something. I've never played sports at that level, but I would tell you this. I think one of the most disheartening things would have to be if I was playing a home game in front of my home fans and I'd made so many mistakes, so many turnovers, so many bad choices that my own fans begin to leave the stadium. You ever see a game like that where, where, the, where the visiting team, I mean, that's the most exciting thing they can, that can happen to them. That's even better for them than hearing a stadium full of their own fans cheer for them. To watch, to watch the, the fans of the team you're beating leave the stadium and give up on them. And that happened to the Bills. Their own fans begin to leave the stadium. But I guess as they get out in the parking lot, suddenly they begin to hear the cheers of the fans that were left. And the Buffalo take, ticket, ticker, ticket takers, well, how do you say that? <laughs> the people at the gate <laughs> wouldn't let them back in. And so I was watching the game. I remember it well. You have Buffalo fans begin to climb over the fence to get back in the game as Buffalo begin to come back. And eventually the gate people said, all right, come on back in if you have a ticket stub. And those who were allowed to come back in were allowed to watch the greatest comeback in NFL history as the Buffalo Bills, after being down 35-3 to in the third quarter, came back to win 41-38 to to win the game only to lose two weeks later to the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Here's the thing. You and I are going to fall behind in life sometimes. We're going to get into trouble, and we're going to need a comeback. And you may even be so bad <laughs> in your life or, or, the, or the, 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 
the falling behind can be so bad that you actually have some of your own fans leave the stadium. Have you ever been so far behind that people who used to believe in you don't believe in you anymore and say, she's finished? It's the end of the game for her. Or it's the end of the game for him. How do you come back when you're behind? I want to do something today in New Spring that's kind of, well, I'll tell you what I want to do, and, and you can sort of interpret it on your own. See, here's the thing that I always worry about. I, 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 on something like how to come back when you're behind because all of us are going to need to come back. I don't want anyone to walk out of here today and say, I went to church and Mark told me how to come back. Because when you're really down in life, and I've been there many times, you're going to need more than saying, some preacher told me how to come back. You're going to need the word of God. Because when you're so far down that your own fans are leaving the stadium and you're not even sure you can come back yourself, you're going to need something very solid to hold on to. Well, the good news for us is if we're going to go to the Word of God, it's the perfect place to go because, you know, we, we, we know of this book is the Bible, but it could just as easily be called comebacks. I could, I'm preaching three weeks on this series. I could preach three years on comebacks, and I would never exhaust all the comebacks in the Bible because that's what happens when you read the, pe the stories of people here. These are comebacks. There's the ultimate comeback of running away from God and then coming back to him. Hey, did, did you ever follow your team in sports? Did you, ever, did you ever like see a game where your team is behind the whole game until like the last three seconds of the game? That's the first time they take the lead. Oh, what about the thief on the cross? Isn't he a great example of that? I mean, he was losing the whole game, and yet he was in the final seconds of the game, and that was the first time he ever took the lead when he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. But there's also the story of God followers, because God followers have to have comebacks too. Abraham had to have several comebacks. David had to have a number of comebacks. Look at Simon Peter. He cursed and swore and said he didn't know Jesus three times, and 50 days later he preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people come to faith. This is the story of comebacks. And the good news for you and me is you and I are going to need comebacks. So with that in mind, I'm going to get Mark out of the way, and I want to take you into the Bible to show you why we fall away and how we come back. This isn't my main text today. Ultimately, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 15. But I don't want to start in Isaiah 53. This is just Mark talking, and, and I, I will set this off from the rest of the message because this is just my opinion. But I believe the greatest chapter in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. I believe the greatest chapter in the New Testament is Romans 8. But we're in a very special chapter. The reason why I love Isaiah 53, and you should love it, is the Jewish prophet Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus was born, is going to basically speak as though he were a viewer at the cross of Jesus. When you read Isaiah 53, Isaiah can be talking about nobody but Jesus. He is going to be so clear there is no other human history, uh, character in human history that he can be talking about except Jesus Christ. And it's actually the depiction of Jesus on the cross in Isaiah 53 is stronger than the ones in the Gospels. But I want to give you Isaiah 53, 6. Many people believe this is the, perhaps the greatest verse in the Old Testament. It says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. Guys, I want to tell you there are three very perplexing statements in that. And I want us to talk about them briefly. First of all, the Bible says we're all like sheep. All. You know, every, I'm not the most social media guy in the world, but every once in a while I'll look on Facebook and there's all these old things like, you know, if you were a tree, what tree would you be? If you were a song, what song would you be? 
Well, you don't have to wonder about what animal you would be. You know, I'd like to be a lab or a golden retriever or a horse. But God says, no, we're all like sheep. Well, you know, sheep are fluffy and all that kind of thing. But the problem with sheep, sheep have a couple issues. Number one, they're directionally challenged. And number two, they have no natural defenses. Of all the animals that shouldn't wander away, sheep are number one on that list. And yet they will. I mean, sheep will leave security and walk, you know, wander away to a dangerous place. And the dumbest thing sheep do is they will follow another sheep into the craziest situations. In 2005, USA Today picked up on a story out of Istanbul where, and I'm not laughing, it's not really funny, I guess. One sheep walked off a cliff, fell to its death, and 1,500 others followed it. 400 sheep died. I guess the other 1,000 were saved because they fell on the bodies of the first sheep who had fallen. But think about that. That's a true story. It's in world media. 1,500 sheep walked off a cliff following another sheep. Now, that's dumb. But the part that stings a little bit is God is saying, Mark, you're like a sheep. You will do dumb things. You're directionally challenged, and you have no defenses for the world that you go crazy in. And yet God said, Mark, that's what you're like. And for all the rest of us, God is saying, all of us are like sheep. Now, here's the puzzling thing. It says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. See, rebellion is in our hearts. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. And all of us, you know, we have different kinds of rebellion. Some of you say, Mark, I'm not rebellious at all. Well, you have white-collar rebellion. Others of you are hellraisers. You're bad to the bone. But at, in the core of all of us, it's in our nature to wander away. I love what St. Paul said in the, God, in, the, in the book of Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He said, I don't really understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Did you know that was in the Bible, New Spring? Paul said, I do stuff I hate. Don't you? I find myself reacting in anger, but I hate being angry. I find myself being judgmental and prejudicial, but I hate prejudice. I find myself wasting time, but I hate being lazy. I just find myself doing what I hate. And, and, if, and here's the thing. Paul was perhaps the greatest Christ follower of all time, and if he'd experienced that, I would experience it. All I'm trying to say is this, guys. We shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves wandering away because all of us are like sheep, and we have a tendency to do that. And it says this in verse 6, we have left God's paths to follow our own. I think a lot of times we don't want to admit that it's our own path. And maybe the reason why we don't want to admit that is we want to be able, if it doesn't go well, to blame somebody else. How many guys go their own path and blame their wives for it? Or, or wives who blame their husbands? Or here's the big one, kids who blame their parents. Or I just watched this all my life. People blow up their lives and blame God for it. In fact, the Bible even says that. In Proverbs 19, three people ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they're angry at the Lord. Why is it we want somebody else to blame when we go our own way? Well, I think part of that is we don't want to admit that it's our own way that got us there. And maybe it's if we can afford to blame somebody, we can continue doing other aspects of our own way. But here's the thing that's most puzzling at all, uh, of all about the scripture to me. In fact, I want to tell you, I've known about this verse all my life, and I found myself delivering this talk the first three times. And I want to tell you something. This is so puzzling, it's really hard for me to get out of my mouth to an audience. Here's the third thing, and it's this. 
What a foolish thing to blame other people. It's so wrong. It's so unnecessary to blame somebody else for your faults. Because look at what the Bible says, Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why, why do you want to blame somebody else for your faults when God blamed Jesus for your faults? That's, see what I'm saying? That's hard for me to get out of my mouth. I mean, we, we assume, this is one of the reasons why we don't come to God, and I think religion teaches us the wrong thing here. We assume that if we come to God, he, he, the only reason he, that we come to him is so he can blame us. And yet the reality is God is saying, look, I understand. All of us are like sheep. We all wander away. We don't have a good sense of direction. We don't have any natural defenses. It's just rebellion is in our hearts. And we wander away, and we get into trouble, and the first thing we expect to read is God is going to blame us for what we've done wrong. And yet, instead of that, the Bible says, you know what? God blamed Jesus for what you did wrong. This is the reason why the highest point on this campus is a cross, because the cross is forever the symbol of God blaming Jesus for what you did. That's still amazing to me. And yet it is the word of God. I think this was the scripture that Jesus had in mind as we go into our text for today, which is Luke 15. The Bible tells us that Jesus was teaching and four groups came to hear Jesus, or at least four groups appeared. Now, these four groups were divided into groups of two. The first group that we read about in verse 1 of chapter 15 and verse 2 were tax collectors and sinners. Now, here's what you should know about when Jesus was teaching. Sinners were people, like I said a moment ago, who were hell raisers. They were sinners, and they had lost their reputation. They were such bad sinners that everybody in town knew these were the really bad people. So whatever you would think these people would do, you could put this on the list because these people came to hear Jesus. I'm sure there were people who, were, who had been prostitutes. There were people who were alcoholics. You know, there were people who were thieves. People who had just done some really bad stuff, blown up their lives, all their fans had left the stadium. This was one of the groups that was there when Jesus was teaching. And then there were the tax collectors. Tax collectors, honestly, I'm not being, trying to be funny. Tax collectors were so bad they couldn't even qualify to be sinners. They were such bad sinners they had their own classification. Because tax collectors were thieves. Rome wanted people of that nationality to collect taxes. Well, no self-respecting Jewish person would collect taxes from other brothers and sisters. And so the only people who would collect taxes were the very worst of the worst. And so in Jesus' teaching, along comes bad-to-the-bone people, along comes tax collectors people. And, and these are just the worst of the worst. Then on the other hand, there were two other groups of people. There were the Pharisees who were the most religious people of Jewish, Jesus' day. They knew the Bible, they believed the Bible, believed in the miracles. These are people that were very careful about keeping all the laws and everything. So these were very, very religious people. And then there were the scribes. The scribes had the responsibility of copying down the scripture, and they, they had memorized the whole Bible at that point. For instance, if you had wanted to know about Isaiah 53, you go talk to a scribe and say, explain this to me. So, okay, you got that? There are four groups of people. There are the, the tax collectors and the sinners, and there are the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, two of these groups came to heckle Jesus, and two of them came to listen. What's your, prep, what's your presupposition on that? If it's me, I would think the Pharisees and the scribes came to listen to Jesus, and the bad of the bone sinners came to heckle Jesus and flip him off. Couldn't have been more wrong. Because, well, let's read it so that you'll know it's in the Bible. This is in Luke chapter 15. 
and the first verse. And the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man receives sinners and eats with them. By the way, how do you, I mean, we think about Jesus as Lord. How do you feel about a guy of whom it is said in the Bible he receives sinners? Chances are the answer to that question depends on how you feel about yourself. If you think you're pretty good and you don't really need a Savior, it can be, gosh, I don't know if I want to be about this Jesus guy. I mean, if he's hanging with sinners, I know this is not going to happen, but suppose you're in the church service today and you have your phone on silent, but it, you still can get text, okay? And you get a text that Jesus Christ is flying into Eisenhower Airport at 11 o'clock, 1130. Will you pick him up? And you're thinking, my goodness, of course I will. Even if I have to leave, Mark will understand. I'm going to Eisenhower Airport. I'll pick up Jesus Christ. He wouldn't need an airplane. But let's just say he's flying into Eisenhower <laughs> at 1130 today. I mean, first of all, you want to make sure you drive your car through the car wash, get it all clean. If you're a guy, you're going to be stuffing stuff in the trunk because you want your car to be ready for Jesus. But here's the big thing. Because you're going to think about, how am I going to entertain him? I mean, I'm going to take him to the best restaurant I'm taking to. And I'm, I know some people that are influential in Wichita, and I'm going to, like, get them out and say, hey, uh, can you meet us together at 3 o'clock? We've got a little reception we're going to throw for Jesus Christ. But instead, when you pick him up at the airport, he gets in the car and he says, uh, take me to South Broadway. Excuse me? Take me to South Broadway. There's some ladies there who've made some bad choices, and I want to talk to them and tell them that there's hope. And when we get through with there, we're going to go down to the county jail, and I'm going to talk to some guys in orange jumpsuits, and I'm going to get in that room where there's a telephone on one side and a telephone on the other side, and I won't put my hand up on the glass where they can put their hand up on the glass against mine, and I won't tell them they can come back. How do you feel about that, Jesus? It's going to have a whole lot to do with how you see yourself. Now, my guess, if you're a New Spring, you're going to say, man, that's our Jesus. That is us. I mean, I mean we, we've all, we are all here by the grace of God. But there are people who didn't like that. And the most religious people of Jesus' day didn't like that. And so I find this interesting. Instead of trying to defend himself against these religious ultra-elite who didn't like that, he told them three stories. And that's what we're going to focus on in the few moments that we have together today. First story he told him, and I think he had that Isaiah 53 text on his mind because he said, what shepherd among you, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, one of them wanders away, you don't leave, all of you guys leave the 99 in the wilderness and you go after the one sheep that was lost. And he said, when the shepherd finds the sheep, he doesn't tell the sheep, find your way home. He puts it around his neck, his shoulders, and he brings it home rejoicing. And I want to read to you what Jesus said in the same way. There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God, there's your comeback, than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. He tells a story that in, you know, first century Judaism would have made a lot of sense to us today. We, we don't really understand. But in those days, a woman would wear oftentimes pieces of her dowry, the coins, in a headpiece around her head. And that was, when she wore that, it's like a wedding ring, ladies. It was her sign of self-respect and respect for her husband and being a person of worth. And if a woman lost one of those coins, it would be a sign that she hadn't been careful or perhaps a sign that she was not um, a woman who took care of things. 
So the second story that Jesus tells is there's a woman who has a headpiece full of coins, and she loses one of the coins, and frantically she searches every dark corner of the house until she finds the coin that was lost. And when she finds the coin, she calls all of her friends and says, come over to the house, we're going to party because I found my coin. And Jesus said, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner comes back, repents. And then he goes into the third story. There are literary experts who say that Jesus' third story is the greatest short story in history. He simply starts his story, this time not about a lost sheep or a lost coin, but a lost kid. A certain man, Jesus said, had two sons. How many parents here have learned that you can have two or three kids that all grow up in the same home with the same love and the same family, and they can be totally different. Honestly, I believe God allows us to have more than one kid and allows that to happen just so we'll stay humble. Because you have that first kid, right? And you don't know anything. But after a while, you think, oh, I've got it figured out now. I've got this thing down. And you get pregnant, and you're starting to have your second baby. So it's going to be a piece of cake because we learned all the answers with our first kid. And then the second kid comes along, and it's just like when you were back in college and somebody gives you a copy of the exam before the exam, and then you find out the professor changed all the questions. <laughs> well, Jesus said a man had two sons, and they were different. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land where there he wasted all his money in wild living. How do you feel about that? I mean, make sure, let's make sure we understand what happens here. This punk kid goes to his dad and says, I don't want to wait till you die. I don't want my money in a trust fund somewhere. I want you to give me everything I have coming right now while I'm a teenager because I want to live my life. I don't want to wait for you to die. Give it to me now. Wow, you know, we want to just... No, that's not politically correct anymore, is it? Okay. <laughs> we want to, though, right? I mean, I've been, I've been reading this story since I was a kid, and all of us are like, what a punk who would do this. But you know what? I really need to back away from that because, after all, the truth of the matter is, I see a lot of Mark in this kid. Let me explain. You know what this kid was asking his father, who is a picture of God? He was saying, I want your resources so I can do what I want to do. Ooh. Ooh, we may not have such an easy time ripping this kid anymore. Because isn't that exactly what we say when we run away from God? I want your resources to do what I want to do. Thank you, God, for giving me youth. <laughs> I'm going to take your resource and do with it what I want to do. Thank you, God, for giving me the gift of sexuality. But I want to take your gift and I'm going to do what I want to do. Thank you, God, for giving me money. I'm going to take your resource and leverage it to do what I want to do. How many of us are not going to be able to rip the prodigal son anymore? Because some of us are right there today. And we're smiling at God. We can even sing the songs and we can even worship. But at the end of the day, our heart's full of rebellion because we're saying, God, I want your resources to do what I want to do. Well, the Bible tells us what he did with those resources. In verse 14, it says, About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer, or one translation I like better says, he attached himself to a citizen of that country. When he blew through the wad that he got from his daddy and all his friends left him, 
He, he, he was a hanger-on. There was somebody in that distant country that he wanted to attach himself to. So basically, he was kissing up to this guy in the hopes that he could get a job. And the Bible says the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Well, now, that's a bad job for any nationality. But guys, you know, in Judaism, you know the dietary laws and restrictions. That was the most awful job a young Jewish boy could get, is to feed hogs. But then we read this line. The young man became so hungry that he almost ate with the hogs. Now, I don't know what y'all call it in Kansas. When I was a kid growing up in Texas, my grandfather had a farm in South Texas. We used to call it slopping the hogs. But you guys are a lot more refined than we were in Texas, so I don't know what y'all call it here in Kansas. But I will tell you this. I enjoyed a lot of jobs with my grandpa when I was on his farm, but the one job I didn't want any part of was slopping the hogs because the wretched stuff that went in that trough was just unimaginably bad. Now, here's the thing. I was working on this talk the other day, and all of a sudden, I had a snag. You know, I've been preaching since I was 16. I've been pastoring for 38 years. I've probably brought two, 300 sermons on the prodigal son. I mentioned it a thousand times. But all of a sudden, I had a snag, and I thought, I don't understand something. There were thoughts that just wouldn't connect, and I couldn't keep going until I could resolve it. Ever happened to you when you read the Bible? It's like you read something, it's like... Boy, there's something I must be missing here. And after all those times, this question came to me. Why did he almost eat with the hogs? I couldn't figure that out. Because the Bible says that he had a job. He, was, he had a job slopping hogs. And it, it puzzled me, and I couldn't go on. And I kept thinking. I was, I was just right at this point in the sermon, and I thought, why did he almost eat? eat with the hogs and then it hit me and it wasn't just that it hit me I could see why God snagged me at this point because I realized I'd never really understood the story of the prodigal son because I hadn't resolved this issue see here's what I've thought through the years because you know what's going to happen next the prodigal son is going to say I'm going to go home to my dad and I'm going to tell him I'm not fit to be a kid anymore just make me a slave I always figured that the reason he came to himself was the awful condition of the hog pen but that's not right it wasn't until I got the answer to this question that was holding me up that I realized I finally realized what the story of the prodigal son is about like I said it wasn't the hog pen that made him think of his dad the reason, you ready for this? The reason he almost ate with the hogs was the man lied to him. He said, if you will feed my hogs, I will feed you. But the boy woke up one day and realized, the man is lying to me. It was when he realized the man was lying to him. It was the man who made him think about his dad. And he said, my dad is good to people that don't even belong to him. And that's when it fell into place. Because if the father is a picture of God, who would the citizen of the far country be a picture of? It's a picture of Satan. Now, here's the thing. You know, when this boy wanted to leave home, he thought he was going his own way. When you and I think we're running away from God, we think we're doing what we want to do. But we're not doing what we want to do. We're doing what Satan wants us to do. Satan is very powerful. 
See, what happened was when that boy spent all of his money and he got to the end of himself and he got to the place where he attached himself to this guy in the hopes that he would feed him and the guy leeringly laughed at him, it's when the mask fell off and this kid realized, I haven't been on my path, I've been on Satan's path. And some of us are there today. See, here's the thing. Anytime we tend to run away from God, we think it's going to be fun and it's going to be great. I'm going to get to do what I want to do. But how many of us have done that only to wake up one day and realize we're not doing what we want to do? Satan's mask has fallen off. And we realize just like our first parents, Adam and Eve and the prodigal son and everybody else, he lied to us. Satan will lure you, but he's not your friend. He will lure you away from God, watch you blow up your life, and laugh at you. I can't tell you how many times I've had a man sit in my office and say something like this. Mark, I'm, I'm not in love with my wife anymore. I've, I've fallen in love with somebody I work with, and she loves me, and she understands me. And I'll say, well, what about your kids? Well, they'll be okay. Well, your wife loves you, and she's a faithful wife to you. Yeah, but I don't love her anymore. And I've actually had guys sit across from me and say, I just have a sense that this is God's will for my life. Now, here's the thing. That rascal right there thinks he's doing what he wants to do. But how many times has that same guy been back in my office a year later only to have the woman he left his wife for cheat on him and walk on, on him and leave him now in a desperate situation with no hope? At that moment, Satan's mask has fallen off, and he said, it was me all the time. Or how about that person who's had a kid who's at a party and somebody's saying, hey, try a hit of meth. And you're saying, okay, that's what I want to do. Only to wake up a year later and you can't face a day without it and you're hooked. I, my heart goes out to those who are hooked on meth because I've been told it's one of the hardest addictions to break. All I'm saying is this. Satan has a way of luring us away, making us think it's our own path. And yet at some point, the mask falls off and we realize he lied to us. Now, you know, that's where this boy was, and he was troubled about this because it's like, how am I going to face my dad? And isn't it true? How many of us here today, our story of coming to God was when we got to the bottom and we realized that that dream that we had that lured us away from God lied to us all the way, and it was that very thing that made us think about God. By the way, if I'm talking to anybody here today, one of the problems that you and I can have at that point is to be stubborn because we think God won't accept us or receive us. Guilt makes us do crazy things. Or it just could be that you're just so stubborn, you're saying, hey, I, I'm gonna, I've gone this far, I might as well keep going. We have a couple that, actually, one of the great things about being at a church as long as I've been at New Spring, I've watched kids come up through you know, high school ranks and then get married and have kids around. We have a young couple that we love very much, Marilyn and I both, and, and um, they, have, they have several kids. And my wife is a good friend of Coco, and she's a great mom, and she's raising some wonderful kids along with her husband, Brandon. And she sent Marilyn some message the other day or sent out a message on Facebook, and she was talking about a little girl. She's just turned four. And little girl did what our kids do. She just kind of got in a bad mood and sort of said something disrespectful to her grandmother. So Coco sent her to the back room to think about it. And Coco went back to talk to her after about 20, 30 minutes or something, see if she was ready to turn around. She said, did you learn what you do, did wrong? Are you ready to go back and apologize to your, to your grandmother? And here's what she said. She said, no, I'm not ready to leave yet. I'm still in here attituding. <laughs> I thought, that is brilliant. 
Boy, that little girl summed up where some of you are right now. Like, I'm not coming back to God. I'm still in here attituding. Well, let's look at what happened, and we'll be finished with this. The Bible tells us that the boy said, I'm going to go back home. Read this in Luke 15, 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say, I have sinned. Notice he didn't say, I'm going to go back and say to my dad, I made some mistakes. Can we lose that cycle babble? A mistake is leaving the milk out overnight. Sin is deliberately going against God. And the boy said, I'm going to go home to my dad, and I'm going to say, I have sinned. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like a hard servant. In effect, the kid was going to go back and say, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. I know I can't live in the house anymore. Let me sleep in the bunkhouse. I know I can't eat at the family table anymore. Just let me eat outside on the picnic table. And I know I can't wear the Armani clothes that used to buy for me, but just give me some work clothes. Would you just hire me? I'm hungry. He memorized that speech. But the Bible tells us when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, guys, if you want to know how God greets people who come back when they realize that Satan lied to them, there's your answer right there. The Bible says the father fell on his neck and kissed him. New Spring, let me tell you something. That's hard for me because I realize where he just came from. He just came from the hog pen. If I'm the dad, I want to say, son, would you go get cleaned up, take a shower, come out here. I want to hug you when you get through. No, no, no. The father, oh, see, religion says, get your life all straightened out and come to God. The Bible says, come straight out of the hog pen. Just come like you are. And the Bible says, the father ran to meet him and fell on his neck and hugged him and kissed him. That is the God that you and I have today. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, no longer worthy to be called your son. We don't have time to make this point. The kid didn't even get to the second half of his speech. The Bible said, but the father said to his servant, bring out the best. Oh, how many of us have lived the worst, and yet if you would come to God, he would say, bring out the best. Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He is found, and they began to be merry. Jesus' story of explaining why he reached out to people who were broken, whose fans had all left the stadium. I want to close today's talk with one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. There's a story that goes with it. We'll save it for another day. But to give you a quick synopsis, King David is estranged from one of his kids. The kid's done something crazy, and David won't speak to him. And it's attention on David, it's attention on the kid, and it's attention for the whole country. And a very wise woman goes in to talk to David, and it's in this context that she says something about God that I love very much. And this is, well, if I had 10 favorite verses in the Bible, i got to put this one in my top 10. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14, the Bible says, All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which can't be gathered up again. Oh, I love this line. But God does not just sweep life away. See, that's the thing. When we feel, we feel like God's just going to come with his broom and just sweep us out. But the Bible says God does not just sweep life away. God doesn't give up on people we've given up on. Some of you here have given up on your kids, but God hasn't given up on them. 
Some of, some of you have given up on people that you love very much, and they've hurt you so badly, it's like you can't even think about them anymore. But as much as you've been hurt, God hasn't given up on them. That's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to have a message called Captain Comeback, and it's going to be about you helping other people come back. God doesn't give up on people. He doesn't sweep life away. Let me read it out of a different translation. We must each die and disappear like water poured out on the ground, but God doesn't take our lives, and I love this. Instead, he figures out ways of bringing us back when we run away. Or my favorite paraphrase says, God is dreaming up schemes to bring the rebel home. I'm talking to some of you here today, and here's the deal. You have run so hard and so fast away from God, and right now you're filled with guilt. And you're, you're, you're angry at God, and yet at the same time you're afraid to come back to him. Because you, you think if you came back to him, he would hate you and blame you. But I know something about you. I know it because I've experienced it myself. There are still moments in your life when good things happen, and you have a sense that it's God, and you can't put it together. Because you're thinking, I would think God would hurt me, and yet I have the sense that he's being good to me. At one such season in my own life, I felt like such a failure, and yet God was doing so many good things in my life. I sat down and I wrote in my diary, I feel like I'm on an island of doubt surrounded by a sea of grace. That's because God is dreaming of ways to get the rebel home. He doesn't want you to go away. He's in the comebacks. I want us to pray for a moment. I know we're a minute over time, but I want us to pray. I want to talk, first of all, to those of you who've never had a relationship with God. But remember this. God isn't looking to blame you. He's blamed his son, Jesus, for the things that you've done wrong. And if you would come just as you are and give your heart to him, he would forgive you and make you his daughter, make you his son. And scripture said, whoever asks, it's a gift. So the way to receive a gift is just to reach out and take it. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And it's a prayer that asks God for the gift. These are not magic words, but I'll say them slowly, and if you want to own them, you can pray with me. You ready? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I've gone my own way, but you love me. And the Bible says you blame Jesus for what I've done wrong. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose in the grave. I want him as my Savior and King, in Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I know we we're crowded, but when you leave, would you go to guest services? It's right out in the lobby. There's a little one back by the coffee shop. And just say, I pray with Mark. You can take the talk to his card back there, and you can just check the boxes and pray with Mark. I have a gift I want to give you. There's a DVD and a book I wrote that will answer a lot of questions and a coupon for a new Bible. And just say, I pray with Mark. We just want to give it to you. Nobody will hassle you or stalk you or anything. We just want to give you this gift. And let me tell you, if you're a God follower here today, you're not too far to come back. Even if you've got fans who have left the stadium, God wants you back. Come back today. Thank you very much. God bless.